You're listening to Energy Insiders, a weekly update on clean energy and climate policy, with Renew Economies editor Giles Parkinson and leading energy analyst David Leach. Energy Insiders is brought to you by SolarRay, experts in solar energy management. Hello, and thanks for joining our podcast again. Another big week of energy news. Um, it's becoming a bit of a habit this time, uh, these days. Uh, this week we had COAG. Uh, we had an extraordinary reaction to Tesla's battery storage announcement. We had um, Queensland's plan for zero emissions by 2050. We had Victoria's renewable energy plan, but not the VRET legislation. And we had some other unsavoury things, such as uh, allegations of how renewables will kill people, and um, even a call by one broadcaster to run the head of the Australian energy market operator out of town. Very unsavoury. Now, to help us make sense of all of this, as usual, is David Leach from ITK. How are you, David? Very well, thanks, Giles. And uh, indeed, you've run through all the headlines this week. Can I just uh, start by asking, do you consider yourself to be delusional? I try not to be. (laughs) And, and, I, I didn't notice the accusation. <laughs> and, and did you notice most of the world's scientists? Do you think, I, I don't really think they're all delusional either, do you? No, I don't. But maybe if you are delusional, then everything else is delusional. I don't know. Maybe. <laughs> Malcolm Turnbull kind of reminds me of a Chinese philosopher who thought he was a butterfly and forever afterwards wasn't sure he wasn't a butterfly, dreaming he was a Chinese philosopher. But, uh, you know, it's uh, fairly ridiculous to, um, to go over to Paris and sign up for COP21 and uh, then turn up in Queensland and say coal's got a big future. I mean, this is the main trouble with policy in a nutshell. Well, it's not so much policy as politics. And of course, he made those comments to the Queensland LNP Congress over the weekend. The Congress, which actually voted to support coal, voted to... um, Oh, they did something about environmental groups. They didn't want environmental groups around them. And they only voted against the idea of not quitting, of not asking Australia to quit Paris, because even though they're all climate deniers, they just thought it was too messy. Yes, and probably it would have been um, fairly difficult for federal politics at a time when federal politics is fairly difficult for them anyway. Yeah, indeed. Hey, look, just before we go on, I just want to say thanks to our listeners. Um, We're getting fantastic feedback, uh, both David and I, from the people who are listening to this podcast, and we do appreciate that, and we encourage further feedback. Um, We're getting fantastic numbers. Um, Well over a 1,000 people now listen to the podcast and growing quite rapidly. And today, as you probably heard at the uh, start of the introduction, we even have, um, this is our first broadcast with a sponsor. So thank you very much to SolarAy and um, their solar and energy management business, and uh, may them be more like that. But look, uh, David, um, let's get into uh, COAG. I think we should give COAG a bit of a run today and talk about the different aspects of it because it is significant and important and complicated. Now, I was intrigued to hear uh, the Energy Minister, George Frydenberg, say on Friday afternoon, saying that he'd been told by one of the head of the energy regulators, and I'm not too sure who he was referring to, who had told him that this is the start of change. This will go down as the um, as, as the signpost when everything changed. Now, we got 49 of the 50 Finkel recommendations through, but not the clean energy target. Um, what do you make of that comment? Well, I think um, it's like Audrey Zuberman, Aubrey, Audrey Zuberman, I hope I've got the pronunciation right, said, the fact is the change is going to happen anyway. It almost doesn't matter if we have a CET. It does matter, but I mean, most of this change is just happening. It's been driven by economics. It's by driven, been driven by utilities. 
who broadly, because they're the ones whose futures are at stake, they're the ones who've had to do the work on climate change, who understand that uh, there does need to be uh, complete decarbonisation, and they're trying to position themselves. They've got the most difficult job, and, and yet they're the ones that are, that are rushing to embrace it, uh, as, as are most of us that do the reading. Um, so, yes, it is an important meeting, the COAG Energy Committee meeting, but it, uh, it's only a question of whether they're on the bus or off the bus. The bus has left the station. Indeed, yeah. Look, um, and I'm not too sure. Look, I agree that the utilities see the future, but I still think they're trying to manage it as best they can to fit the image of their own, of their own business model, and not necessarily trying to hurry it up, but um, trying to manage it. And um, we'll see which is the best outcome. Let's go through the clean energy target now. Obviously, Frydenberg can't commit to it because of all the politics that's happening within his own party. As as much as he probably would like to, he simply can't say yes. We'll follow it. So he's trying to manage that um, expectation. Now, the states have come up and said, well, we'll do it ourselves. Um, what do you make of this? I mean, to me, it seems highly unlikely that the states would, that they're simply using this opportunity to play a bit of politics. The ACT doesn't need a clean energy target. It's already going to be at 100% renewables by 2020. Victoria hasn't even legislated its VRET yet, so how it would get around to legislating a clean energy target before next year's state poll is remains to be seen. Um, and then the other thing is that the clean energy target, unless we actually... Uh, increases ambition is probably useless anyway. We can probably get to those current reductions with the current state-based renewables targets, and really it's only useful if we're actually using it to ramp up ambition um, to the level that Labor would like it or even beyond to where the Greens would like it. So my problem with the Finkel report was how vague it was. It came up with all of these um, ideas. It didn't necessarily back up any of the ideas with solid reasoning as to why they should be introduced and certainly didn't go to the level of actually specifying, for instance, uh, the level of the clean energy target or, or the level of the generator reliability obligation. So all of this has to be worked out by someone else. And in a sense, and, and um, if we take the generator reliability obligation, for instance, it's been left to AEMO to go away and work out all the details. And uh, then they have to go back to the AMC and get a rule change. <laughs> and we all know how fast that's going to be. It's going to be fascinating to see if the AEMC, which has moved with no alacrity at all with all the other uh, rule changes, such as five-minute rules and demand management and energy efficiency and God knows what else, um, it'll be funny to see if they actually sort of leapt into gear on this one. Yeah, uh, and so as far as the clean energy target goes, it, it does come back to the same point that the federal government has to have a policy. They have to have a policy. And uh, so it's simply a matter of rolling over the right wing, if or... Um, or failing on their COP21 t targets. It's, that's what it really comes down to. Yeah, look, you know, I've been saying this a couple of times and I haven't made a big story about it, but I've mentioned it in a couple of mine. I still think that September 12 is the big day because that's the day when Malcolm Turnbull lasts a day longer than Tony Abbott as Prime Minister. Therefore, he is no longer at any risk of being the shortest um, running uh, Liberal Prime Minister in history and uh, maybe then he'll have the gumption to actually say to the far right, well, um, here we go, here's my policies. Maybe that speech about Liberals and Conservatives was the uh, forerunner to that, but then when you hear him talking about um, people being delusional about coal over the weekend, then um, maybe we're not too sure. Well, I, I think we should, I don't want to get 
too down on the detail of politics because it's a, it's a, it's a changing feast. But we do need to see what policy is coming through. And just to point to another difficulty of getting federal policy through, something you didn't mention in the outline but was worth a mention, was vehicle policy. Because as we know, electricity or stationary energy has been asked to carry the entire burden of whatever policy there is, but it's only responsible for about 36, 37, 38% of emissions, which are going up. And as soon as we get something that we should have some vehicle standards in Australia and realising that Australia's got some of the dirtiest fuel uh, going, uh, then that's a carbon tax. And, and know. you know, this it's is just... Frustrating. It is totally frustrating. And it, I, I, there's going to have to come a point, uh, without dwelling on the politics, where you're just going to have to slam the right down and say we are going to have some policies consistent with the rest of the world uh, like vehicle emissions policies, are, 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 you know, that most of the world's got them. Uh, wake up. Um, that, that's... And, and, and we've become a dumping ground, as Mark Butler pointed out in the, um, in, in the recording we had last week. Uh, we've become a dumping ground for inefficient vehicles and dirty vehicles, which can't be sold in any other country. It's ridiculous. So, so at, at some point, Turnbull's going to have to uh, make a stand about this. This is the point where I get to... Um, um, but let's let's move on to what actually COAG also recommended. As you said, we have um, 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 a clean energy target, but there's not. We can't really say any more about that because there is no detail on it. I guess the other thing that struck is we can't say anything about um, uh, a generator reliability because we've we've got no proposal yet. Except what we can say with complete confidence is that no one else in the world is trying to ensure that every individual generation unit has its own uh, dispatchable component. Anyone who looks at this from a portfolio point of view and, and looks at the example of how it's been done in every other jurisdiction around the world is going to see that it's a system um, problem maintaining reliability of the energy, not an individual generator problem. It, that's, that's, exa that's exactly right. And it was very interesting because I'd been writing about um, what Josh Frydenberg had been saying when he'd been presenting to his party room and also in a conference a couple of weeks ago talking about matching a megawatt of capacity with a megawatt hour of storage. And um, he got on the phone the other day to sort of say, no, 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 that's not what I mean. I'm not suggesting that. It's up to the discretion of the of, of AEMO. So um, I think somebody had a word in his ear and um, realised he'd probably gone too far. Um, my understanding, but, I think it's going to be crucial to see, sorry, David, I just thought about it in the game, but I think it's going to be crucial to see how much of a say AEMO have over this. And what I'm hoping is that this generator obligation, however this take, form this takes, allows the AEMO to have an incredible amount of discretion over this because, as someone pointed out the other day, this is going to be a changing feast. You might build one solar farm and the judgment in South Australia, say, where we're at the point where we probably need more dispatchable generation, and the judgment may be that this solar farm needs X amount or X amount of firming capacity with it, and it won't certainly won't be one for one. But then the next solar farm may not need any at all because of what's happened previously. So it's going to be changing, and it's going to be applicable different in every single jurisdiction. And in Tasmania, for instance, with so much hydro, you're not going to need much battery storage rather back up at all. Well, that's exactly right, Giles. And, and look, I, I come from a, um, a stock market background and we used to talk about portfolio construction. It's what you learn in finance one, two and three. 
and you look at the uh, contribution each individual unit makes to the variance of the portfolio. And, and I mean, this is a standard covariance problem in, in many different disciplines, and to treat it any other way in electricity uh, just defies common sense, it defies logic, and uh, uh, the further we go down this track, uh, the more obvious it's going to be. But I'm glad you mentioned Tasmania. You know, going to these conferences, and I guess the Clean Energy Conference uh, in the next week will be the same, is actually incredibly rewarding. And I, the uh, Storage Conference had a great presentation from Hydro Tasmania pointing out how with a bit of reconfiguration and some more transmission across Basslink, they, they've got this ambition to be the, the battery of the system. You know, they've got something like two and a half gigawatts of uh, hydro power. And if we had more wind uh, in Tasmania or going to Tasmania so that they didn't have to use that hydro for energy but could use it for power, then that's a relatively cheap way to give two and a half gigawatts of backup to the system, uh, which has like maximum demand of, say, 30 gigawatts. So, you know, it's already there, more or less. Well, more or less. I do think they need some more pumped hydro there in Tasmania because if we found out a couple of summers ago, they did run short of water for their main hydro thing and um, when that bass link went down. So um, I think they need more transmission. More. Need uh, more transmission. I reckon they probably need some more pumped hydro as well, but um, we'll see about that. Um, yeah, that, look, that generator obligation thing, I think that's going to be a, um, a really interesting one. But talking about sort of you know, strange reactions to things, um, we haven't had much um, to say about Tesla. In fact, the Tesla thing was announced after our last podcast, but um, pretty excitement development. But, geez, what an extraordinary reaction. And, and I'm going to have to blame, blame Frydenberg on this because he came out with a statement saying, oh, this is all very well, but it will only account for 1% of the wind energy. It could only store 1% of the wind energy. And then other people followed saying, well, you'd need 30 more to be able to provide you know, the three gigawatts that South Australia needed. But for goodness sake, this battery is not actually designed to provide the baseload power for South Australia. It's there to help fill in the gaps and provide some stability when these damn fossil fuel machines start switching off and tripping in the middle of the summer heat. So that's the problem when you get uh, a fight between South Australia and the federal government. You can guarantee that the other side is going to try and knife you at every opportunity. To succeed in business, it's an old adage that you need lots and lots of friends and not too many enemies. Um, and of course, the Tesla battery is designed, I would guess, to provide frequency services and other very short-term services. Of course, it's not a solution to making the South Australian system, um, say, independent of gas or, or more reliable. We've discussed before that you're going to get utility batteries that mainly provide fast frequency services. That's what they're being used in the UK, in the USA and in South Korea, which actually has a, a probably the biggest installed base of it already. Not, not, not surprising considering their manufacturing capability and China will overtake us, the whole lot of them fairly soon. But you're going, you know, if you want to shift uh, time shift energy, you want the batteries out on the fringe of the grid in the houses, and that you know that we'll probably end up with more than 100 megawatts of that in South Australia within a couple of years. And then we also want some other uh, forms of uh, energy storage, whether that is in in the transition transition combined cycle gas, or whether it's the pumped hydro, or even the concentrating thermal. We, we've yet to see, but there's no way knowing this this. Uh, this battery was designed to, to solve South Australians' problems in itself. I know, but it's just a bit disappointing. I mean, it's a bit like the vehicle emission things that you talked about. You know, it was immediately labelled a carbon tax. It was immediately labelled, oh, this is going to make things more expensive, when in fact it's actually going to make things cheaper. 
because one of the things that a battery storage does is actually introduce competition to the South Australian market, and God knows it needs it. Um, and you, you know, even one competitor with a small amount of capacity can actually minimise or minimise prices to a significant degree. So, um, Charles, you remind me that I was reading an academic article. You know, they've put a 10 megawatt battery into Ireland, uh, which actually has an electricity system slightly smaller uh, than South Australia, like electricity consumption. And uh, they've also got a very high percentage of wind. And they are finding that that battery can provide, uh, every megawatt of it can provide up to about 10 megawatts of gas because of the fast speed and because it can be undercharged, partially charged, so it can do with over frequency and under frequency. In, in, in the particular role that that battery is designed for, it's an absolutely wonderful piece of kit. Well, I think we should have an article on that sometime. I think we should point this out. Even 10 megawatts is good enough for the Irish and, the, um, and, and a, and a wind-heavy grid. I look forward to that, David. <laughs> now, we, we, haven't, we haven't mentioned, uh, you know, talking about nasty attacks, we haven't mentioned Alan Jones. I, I don't want to spend too much time dwelling on the negatives. I just want to say that I think his back problems, which have been fairly well publicised, must be getting a lot worse. I mean, and he must be feeling the pain a lot to, to make some of the, you know, fairly absurd comments that, that we've seen recently. Well, that's right. Yeah, I don't want to give it too much amplification other to sort of, you know, reject and, and, and express my abhorrence. Um, this attack was on Audrey Zieberman, the, um, the US head of AEMO, and um, he suggested that she be sort of um, packed out of the country or sent back to where she came from or something like that. And and um, made all sorts of allegations about her, and it was quite extraordinary, quite unnecessary, and and, um, and very, very ugly. I didn't really like it at all. You know, um, Alan Jones is, is such an energetic person. I, I read, I, I went, looked him up on Wikipedia after that article, and, and uh, after that talk, and apparently he once, in one year, as well as all the other things he did, he wrote 4,000 letters to the federal government in one year. You know, just imagine if he used all that energy to do something useful. <laughs> One can only imagine. Except I bet you didn't write them himself. He got somebody else to write them on his, on his behalf. Um, talking about stupid comments, um, we had um, uh, we had Craig Kelly. He's the coalition head of their energy committee or the parliamentary energy committee talking about renewables going to kill people um, because renewable energy is pushing up prices. Therefore, people won't put the heaters on. Therefore, swimming pools won't um, use electricity to heat their pool. Therefore, kids won't learn how to swim. Therefore, they'll drown and it'll all be the fault of wind and solar. Um, I don't know whether we can get any more ridiculous than this. Um, no, but we can't get... Well, well the, wind, the people are already dead. They've been killed by wind farms, haven't they? You know, I mean, just, just been in, in the general facility. I mean, Craig's probably the kind of guy that walks past, uh, you know, homeless people sleeping on the street in Brisbane without a, out a single thought uh, and, and wanders up to his now air-conditioning house and then, then talks about all the, all the people he doesn't know who are going to die from exposure to not enough electricity. Well, as someone pointed out, he was one of the people who were responsible for the um, repeal of the um, special payment um, to to deal with electricity prices. So um, he knocked that payment off on the head. So um, he's to blame. But it's just ridiculous. I mean, but even Malcolm Turnbull was asked about it at this Queensland LNP conference, and he sort of said, "Well, of course, renewables put up the up, up the prices of electricity." Which um, yeah, you you're just going, "Oh my God!" Didn't you even read the report that the Tony Abbott committee did? It's actually causing um, energy prices to fall. And what we're seeing over the last year or two is, of course, two things, the rise in gas prices and the unfettered um, ability 
of the big generators to control prices. And we've seen in Queensland, as soon as the word came out to stop their gaming of electricity markets, they stopped it. And the price is now the lowest in the, st in the country, whereas for the last four or five years, not just over summer, it's been up there with South Australia to be the highest. So we should give a shout out, Giles, to Hugh Sadler's uh, report pointing out uh, once again that gas is highly correlated gas with electricity prices. I mean, that's not news to anyone who follows the sector. And uh, I sort of kicked myself because I had all these graphs on the computer showing exactly the same thing. I couldn't even be bothered publishing them. Uh, but, but I guess in South Australia, where it shows up is that now we've got to have three gas generators running at all times. What that's going to mean is, is definitely higher prices for South Australians, even when the wind is stronger. And I guess more of the uh, so, so, you know, we need to find a way not to get more gas into the system. We need to find a way to get gas generation out of the system as fast as possible. Almost in some ways, if you want to lower prices, it, it, you'd be better off getting the gas generation out before the, before the coal. Absolutely. Look, I agree with that. In fact, it's interesting just this weekend, um, there's been more than four, 1,400 megawatts of wind capacity at various times. Um, there's been four gas generators running. And because of that, the price has stayed above $100 a megawatt hour, even though most of it's been exported to Victoria. And when normally when you get more than 1,000 megawatts, and particularly when you get 1,400 megawatts of wind, the price should be down pretty close to zero. But um, I'm hoping that this measure is a bit of a safety first measure by AEMO until they get their head around some of the other possibilities, particularly through battery storage and other smarter technologies. And then we can do exactly as you suggest, um, get reduce our reliance on gas. Um, David, look, it's been a great discussion. I think we might, we, there's a few things on for next week. Um, now, the Clean Energy Summit I'm going to mention, but just before that, I'm just actually going to mention John Dee's program on Sky TV. Um, he sent me a uh, text message the other day saying it's his 100th episode on Wednesday. And good for John Dee for having that up on Sky TV, Sky News, um, a Murdoch, um, Murdoch organisation. He has con lots of stories about how businesses and other people uh, choosing renewables because it reduces costs, uh, choosing energy efficiency and manufacturing efficiency because it reduces costs. And it's possibly helpful that maybe if some of the other commentators on Sky News and the Murdoch Media actually watched his show and um, got a good education. Yeah, good luck with that. Um, I, I'd also like keep coming back to this conference that we went to, and I, I do want to talk about the Clean Energy Conference, and I hope it's uh, as useful as the storage conference I went to because we've I've already talked about um, um, hydro Tasmania. Uh, there was a fantastic presentation there on pumped hydro in South Australia, which we need to look into more. But there were also some fantastic examples of how the combined uh, behind the meter uh, solar and battery storage is working uh, already in Australia and very successfully. So there was a school in Queensland uh, that's got uh, one of the big Tesla power packs and some uh, rooftop PV and seeing fantastic savings. So they're going to expand that system by a factor of five or six times. Uh, we saw the Lonely Planet building in Melbourne that's doing the same thing, rooftop PV and battery behind the meter, and also selling that battery power using green sink te technology uh, back to the grid. And I'm uh, expecting that these high uh, power prices from the grid um, are just going to be encouraging more and more of this. And I think it's a great time to be a PV and battery installer. I just hope that we get plenty of competition uh, to get some of these uh, margins down a bit in the installation side of things. 
Indeed, indeed. And um, look, one interesting thing about the Clean Energy Summit is that Barnaby Joyce, the Deputy Prime Minister and great renewables fan, is actually going to be making a speech. He's going to do the closing speech on the first day, but it's been shifted to earlier in the afternoon, and I'm told it's going to be standing room only because everyone's just really interested in knowing what Barnaby's got to say. Uh, Barnaby, of course, is a big critic of renewable energy, but his electorate of New England is actually turning into a centre of renewable energy because of the White Rock Wind Farm, the White Rock Solar Farm, and he had a shuffle out there the other day turning the first sod of, of that project. There's the Sapphire Wind Farm. There's a big plan by the New South Wales government to make that the centre of a big renewable energy spine going up and down the country through the New England um, electorate. And there's a big plan by Transgrid to make it a renewable energy hub. So um, that that's my home easy. area, Giles. That's my home area. And I can tell you it is windy up there. And, and, uh, and you know, uh, there's not much I can say about Barnaby. He says whatever he thinks at the time, which isn't... <laughs> But I, I will say uh, some of the comments, because he's the local member up there and because, frankly, my dad was the state politician up there for a while and my mum was the mayor in Armidale, I do keep an eye on what he's, all the things he said and he, he's not nearly as bad as he used to be. I'll just say that for Barnaby. Well, I think we'll take that as a sign of progress. Um, David, look forward to it. We'll be back again next week, uh, possibly exchanging a few thoughts about what we saw at the Clean Energy Summit and what we heard. So um, thank you, David. Thanks, Giles, and uh, thanks again to our, our, new, sp our new sponsor. It's uh, great, uh, uh, Solaray. They've got they put the panels on my roof, and uh, darn good job they did. Fantastic, and thanks to all the listeners. And um, enjoy this. Love your feedback, and we'll talk again next week. Bye bye. Energy Insiders is brought to you by Solaray. Experts in solar PV, storage and monitoring. They're the smart choice for consumers and business. Visit solarray.com.au and secure your energy future today.